and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are looking at the theme of trust in Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. So to start us out, we have a quote. And this quote comes from the last season of Avatar Last Airbender from the episode The Western Air Temple. Shortly after Zuko here, when Katara decides to threaten Zuko after he is allowed to stay. You make one step backward, one slip up, give me one reason to think you might hurt Aang, and you won't have to worry about your destiny anymore. Because I'll make sure your destiny ends, right then and there, permanently. Yikes, Katara. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Threatening murder at such a young age. This does come shortly after she learns how to bloodbend, so Katara at this point is quite scary. But importantly, this also comes after Katara had initially had compassion on Zuko the first time she really interacted with him. Mm -hmm. They actually had conversations, and she was going to try to use the spirit water to heal him and, and things like that at the very end of season two. And then to have him turn right around and betray them and Aang almost die. And, you know, it's left her very jaded towards him, which I can understand. Absolutely. I think that after she puts some trust in him, put some faith in him for mm-hmm. him to betray that, it is a, a real betrayal. Um, and thus, it makes sense why she would be of the team the least likely to welcome him back easily. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was never there to begin with, but, you know. I guess that's true. (laughs) Back is the incorrect word. Just, he's there in my heart. (laughs) Did did he ever leave? (laughs) Well, and that's the thing, too. It's like, she doesn't trust him. She's not saying, I am going to kill you now. Mm -hmm. She's not, you know, it, it was Aang's choice because he's the Avatar and doesn't have a firebending master. Mm hmm. But she was not happy with it, and she's like, they are putting their trust in you. If you betray that, this is what you have coming to you. Yeah, absolutely. You're also highlighting how this is a decision she's making because she does trust Aang. Because she respects his decision-making abilities, and, and that she's going to put her trust in that decision, even if she disagrees with it, even if she doesn't think it's the best choice. She'll agree with it, but she'll also stipulate that if he steps out of line, there will be consequences. Yeah. It's like, this is the decision that's Aang's to make, but if you do this, then I have a decision to make, and this is what it's going to be, just so you know. Exactly. I mean, it's better to to be up front and tell someone you will kill them yeah. than not. Yeah. But it's still... Calm down, Katara, just a little bit. Let's <laughs> be a little less violent. Uh, hopefully Zuko trusts t- t- Katara that she's serious. <laughs> I think he does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's hard. H- how do you build trust? The little anybody ever gave you, you betrayed, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's rough. Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not there yet. It's a few episodes in the future. Field trips with Zuko. Build trust. Exactly. Well, why don't we get into our analysis? So what character did you bring to talk about today? 
Well, we've been doing this podcast for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. Over three years. And we have not brought Azula as our character oh, yet. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so it was time. And I think trust is a really good theme for her. Mm. Because... So she has this great quote. I, I don't remember what episode it's from. But she says, trust is for fools. Fear is the only reliable way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is such an Azula quote. Yes. But I think it's interesting because I think she trusts herself a ton. She trusts herself too much, frankly. She trusts in her abilities for bending, for manipulation. She trusts in her own judgments and even her, you know, kind of supposedly superior royal blood. Like, she she is so confident and she trusts in these things so much that she acts from that place at all times, Mm. pretty much. The only time we ever see her be a little more vulnerable until the very end is in the episode The Beach, where we actually see her feel a little vulnerable because flirting is nothing she's ever had to try before, and she's not good at it yeah. at all. I also think that she does trust Mei and Tai Lee to some degree, mm. like their skills. Yeah, She could have taken other random fire nation yeah, she soldiers did, she didn't get one of those great archers that we see mm-hmm. in the blue spirit episode she went specifically for the two of them she didn't get sparky sparky boom man yeah. you know they're yeah. different people so i think she has trust in their skills and i think she trusts their loyalty to her mm-hmm. until obviously that's betrayed and that's a, a real crisis point for her But I guess I have some questions about her as well, because, like, I'm wondering, is she fully on board with the Fire Nation propaganda? And does she believe it and trust her dad and the narrative that the country, you know, is is putting forward? Does she actually believe that that's true? Or does she just not care because she wants world domination? And after her dad is dead, then obviously she would just take that from Zuko. Yeah, it just it makes me wonder because she trusts so few people besides herself. Like, if she became Fire Lord, we even see a little bit of the, the lead up to that. You know, would not only be she be able to trust the people around her, but would she be able to continue to craft a good propaganda narrative for the masses to believe in? Mm. Because it just makes me think of the first time we ever meet her in the series is when she's talking to the captain of a ship to, like, bring the ship to shore. And he's like, the tides aren't right right now, so we're gonna wait. And she's just, oh, I'm sorry. Do the tides control this ship or do you? And... Or really, or do I? Or do I? Yeah, exactly. It's like, I can throw you overboard and you'll die. I haven't made my mind up about you yet, but the tides already have, so who should you be listening to? And just like, this is how she handles things. Yeah, she clearly has a distorted view of reality and her position within it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that, I think, comes from a overconfidence and over trust in her own abilities and her station mm-hmm. the captain is scared of her mm-hmm. so he does what she says yeah. but when you have one person to lead everyone else you only need a band of a certain amount of people and they could overtake her you yeah. know 
So <laughs> you have to craft a convincing enough narrative for people to trust and believe in. And I don't know if people would trust her. It's so fascinating that you're saying this because these issues come up really interestingly in one of the comic book series um, mm. that take place after the show. Okay. I know. I still need to read those. You really oh. do. Uh, and I think that would actually be an interesting way of looking at that series is kind of through this conversation because, yeah, she is someone who not only is a competent fighter and a smart tactician and all these other kinds of things, she is a leader and she believes in herself as a leader. And that brings in additional requirements to be a competent leader beyond just your own personal abilities. Mm -hmm. And she so quickly, when she gets that much power, rids herself of any support that even if Zuko and Katara didn't defeat her, her leadership would not last very long because she just, yeah, she didn't have the support of anyone outside of, yeah, maybe herself as a figurehead and, and kind of the propaganda that comes with it. I love that you say Zuko and Katara when really it was just Katara, but... <laughs> For sure. I mean, I think Zuko at least upset her to an extent <laughs> that, you know, she became, uh, she, she, I don't think that she was necessarily performing at the peak of her abilities, particularly during Sozin's Comet. Mm -hmm. But, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the last thing that I was thinking about regarding her and trust is just, like, did her kind of extreme trust issues and really only herself and a very small number of other people, but only still for them to a certain degree. Did that develop because of the family that surrounded her? Because if we look at her family, her grandfather told Ozai to kill Zuko because Ozai had basically made a self-serving social blunder of being like, well, I should just be next in line. And then her dad was going to do it. Mm-hmm. And then her mom, who thought she was a monster, then went and killed the grandfather, or at least arranged for the grandfather to be killed. Yeah. And I mean, Azula perceived her mom as thinking of her as a monster. We don't know if that's how her mother actually felt. Depends how perceptive her mother was. <laughs> <laughs> and then her uncle Iroh failed in the war, which mattered to her. Mm-hmm. And also, for some reason, thought that she would like a doll to play with. <laughs> Which, what are you doing, Uncle Iroh? Sure, don't give her a knife, but give her something that's appropriate for her as a child. Yes. <laughs> and then her brother was just not intellectually or, or physically skilled in the way that she was. And so, yeah, I could imagine growing up around all of that. They're not trusting anyone but yourself and you are capable in so many different ways that then you would have this overinflated sense of superiority and untouchableness. Mm -hmm. When she's been rewarded her entire life for these specific elements, for being good at firebending, for being the dutiful daughter, for being cruel at times, and has seen her father in particular also be rewarded for similar things... Yeah, it, I think it makes sense why she has some of the characteristics that she has, for sure. Do you think that she's a dutiful daughter? 
I think that she's a dutiful daughter, at least in regards to maintaining the power of her father on the throne. She follows his orders. She, you know, is, is willing to certainly side with her father against Zuko and is willing to play be bait for the Avatar and their their gang during the, the Night of Black Sun. They're... For sure. I just don't know if she does it out of a sense of duty. Like, she excels because she likes to excel and she's good at things, right? And that, that lets Ozai have a sense of pride in his offspring, his legacy, these, you know, problematic sort of ideas. And she is like, yeah, the Fire Nation should take over the world. And so then she will do things to contribute to that. But she also lies to her dad about what happened with Aang at the end of season two and things like that. Right. So my point was not necessarily that she is in all ways a dutiful daughter. My point was that she gets rewarded for being a dutiful daughter, and so she plays that role. Hmm. Got it. Um, because, yeah, she she constantly frames things as she is doing this in service to the Fire Lord, in service to her father. And I think that, that if she felt like she could actually take power, she probably would, but... I think until that gets there, she's going to also play the hand that she has, which is to to ensure that her father sees her as dutiful and as someone to have trust in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting. Azula is just such a great character. Yeah, I mean, she, she's not even in the entire first season. Mm-hmm. We see her once cheering on while the Agni Kai is going on. Yeah. And- Looking way too excited Super about excited it. Super excited for like a seven-year-old. <laughs> yeah, is watching their dad abuse their brother. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Trust starts early. <laughs> well, why don't we move on to your plot point? So I want to talk about a episode, maybe two episodes that happened in the first season of Avatar: The Last Airbender, mm-hmm. when. On their journey to the North Pole, Team Avatar finds a Southern Water Tribe soldier and mm-hmm. are talking to him about how the war effort's going. And for Sokka and Katara, this is not only an old friend of their family, but someone who can give them updates on their father. And in the midst of this, Aang is the one who receives a letter from their father, from Hakoda, and he chooses not to deliver it to them. Mm-hmm. He chooses not to give it to Sok and Katara because he's afraid that that will mean that they'll abandon his quest. They will go to seek out their father rather than helping him get to the North Pole and helping him do all the things that he needs to do. This is clearly a a breach of trust that Aang does to his friends, where he yeah. betrays them in a way. He betrays their trust, at least. He does something that is dishonest and selfish. Though he does own up to it. He, you know, he... he doesn't necessarily really get caught doing it. He just kind of explains what he did afterwards. And they're understandably upset, though they do not leave. I mean, they do for a moment. Yeah, for a moment. <laughs> not, not, not for more than an episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, I think that th- this is an interesting element where we see someone breaking the trust of someone else, uh, of characters that they're close with. Mm-hmm. But I think this is also showing, in part, how Aang didn't really trust their commitment to him in this task. He felt like, or at least he feared, that their commitment 
to their father would become a higher priority to them than what they're doing together. And particularly for someone who has lost almost everyone, that's something that's really, really scary for him. Oh, absolutely. And I think that highlights in one part how trust isn't a constant because other factors will weigh in on how easy it is to trust in someone or in something. Mm-hmm. Because maybe it's harder to, to have complete trust in something when you rely on that so much that you feel like just trusting it without taking other steps to ensure that that will happen or that this this thing that you want will occur just isn't enough. And I, and I particularly relate to Aang in some ways because at that age there were certainly relationships that were important to me that I didn't have complete trust in. And I didn't always know how to engage in those areas, particularly if, yeah, there was something that I did or that I said or that I found out or just some sort of information I thought could possibly alter a relationship. Do I choose to share that information and risk that? Do I have enough trust in this relationship to know that? Even if you're not consciously doing something that is itself dishonest or untrustworthy and that could ultimately break that trust, there are these other kinds of things that pull on you. And so this is just one of those occasions where, first off, I see Aang as a 12-year-old kid mm-hmm. who's lost almost everyone. But also, I like it because it shows real tensions between priorities and fears of these characters and how that can actually lead to conflict that doesn't have to require any maliciousness, but it can lead to interpersonal issues between a group of people who care about each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, sure, what he did was not right, but I can completely empathize with him mm-hmm. of just everyone you knew and loved besides Appa yeah. is dead, and you feel guilt about that, you feel sorrow about that, you have fear because you're being chased and hunted so that they can kill you. And you haven't known these other people that long. And they said, we're your family now and and we're with you, but you don't have a long-standing strong relationship to rely on. Yeah, that would be really difficult and it would be terrifying to, to think of what if I have to do all of this on my own yeah with no support group and i I don't know a kid that young how how do you ask more from them when that's that's the reality they're facing if i was in that circumstance at 12 years old i probably would have done something similar i wouldn't have just like tossed it away i mean I, i guess he like did he put it in his clothes i don't remember exactly he still had it but i would have like maybe been like oh we should probably head out tomorrow and then like slip it into the tent or whatever <laughs> so batu gets it but mm-hmm. as an adult i would handle that differently but as a 12 year old that is probably what i would do if i was legitimately scared that they would leave yeah you yeah know? exactly yeah boring boring I mean, they don't leave, and they prove to be great friends to him, so I guess not that poor. I mean, besides the genocide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just that. Yeah. Just the genocide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else is fine, but yeah, yeah. It's just a good representation in, in, again, a kid's show of complex relationships and when decisions are hard and when people make the wrong decisions, how that can affect relationships, but not necessarily have to destroy them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's head into our compelling questions. So what's your question for me? So I'm wondering how you think trust in the idea of the avatar bringing balance to the world affects both leaders and average people. Hmm. Very interesting. The first thing that comes to mind, honestly, is how, particularly in Legend of Korra, the extent to which a leader trusts in the avatar to bring balance to the world kind of is used as shorthand for how much you're supposed to like this leader. (laughs) (laughs) The ones that don't, like the Earth Queen, don't like them. The ones who will work with her but be kind of distrustful, like President Raiko, okay, kind kind of iffy. Those who are like the Fire Lord or Tenzin, who are completely with the with the Avatar no matter what, those are the ones that we're fans of. <laughs> you know, so it kind of, I think, is used as a way to highlight how trustworthy or likable uh, a, a leader might be. But when you look deeper at that, you know, I think particularly with President Raiko, you can also see the complexities that it takes to lead a community like that that that's that that is that large and the concepts the avatar brings are important and significant but they also aren't going to be able to affect municipal government and taxes (laughs) and roads and you know building permits and a police force and all these other kinds of things like things are just so complex that it's hard for an avatar to to bring balance to all of those things. The mm-hmm. avatar has to work in such kind of high-level concepts for the most part that those kind of lower street-level types of issues sometimes, you know, when you're a leader and those are your, respo- your responsibilities, maybe that is something that you, you don't have trust in the avatar because that's not what you're expecting the avatar to do. Mm-hmm. That's not their job. And also I could imagine it would be hard to trust a 16 year old 17 year old with fixing all of these adult <laughs> problems and core is not always a model of maturity <laughs> either yes so yeah, yeah maybe maybe you would trust asami <laughs> if she was the avatar not not to solve the pollution problem no, no, but other problems but uh cora she, she takes a while to get there <laughs> Yeah. In contrast, I I think about how for Aang, there is, I think, either trust in him just because at this point he's almost a mythological figure or distrust in him for the same reason. Yeah. It's so far removed. Every leader other than Boomy is someone who's never really experienced and certainly never led at a time when the Avatar was around and active. And I guess Boomy wouldn't either if Boomy was the same age as Aang. So I can understand, you know, though obviously their methods and ideologies are awful, but why the leaders of Bossing say in the Dai Li, they at least have a working system. They have a working society. It is extremely On the backs of working yeah, people. <laughs> it is extremely unethical and oppressive in many, many ways. And it's certainly not sustainable in that at some point the war will come there. Yeah. But I can also, yeah, I can understand the the rationale behind not just being like, well, the Avatar's back. Now we're going to be okay. Especially when your leader is like the Earth King. Also that, <laughs> yes. And I imagine he's not the first Earth monarch to 
be in that role. Be a joke. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to, to, I think, the average people, I think, yeah, again, it, it kind of comes to the scale of what they're facing. Because if they're facing local bandits, maybe they don't have trust in the Avatar, you know, in the same way that they don't trust any person to come and help them. But if they're facing a volcano, if they're <laughs> facing a war, if they're facing monumental catastrophe, that's something that maybe having that they might have more faith in the Avatar to actually show up for because it is such a a wide level issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What were you thinking? Yeah, I think it's interesting because you have all of these avatars that came before, and we know that Roku had to stop a war. Mm-hmm. Kiyoshi also. Mm-hmm. Although, I'm not even sure if she did, rather than just kind of created her own island. I guess if we read the book, we'll find out. Books. Books. Point. Oh no, we're so behind. <laughs> but prior to them, we don't know. Mr. Go-with-the-flow avatar waterbender didn't seem like there was much major conflict. Yeah, I think he said he was living in a fairly peaceful time. Exactly. And, you know, so the, the worst thing that happened to him was that his partner's face was stolen by Ko. And it seems like for most avatars, spirits also weren't a huge deal they had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah, the farther you go back, maybe it was more mm-hmm. so. I'm not sure, but... Yeah, I think it, it's interesting that then you have so many more problems by the time of Korra mm-hmm. to deal with. Every season it's a new one or more villains to deal with. And, and I kind of wonder if part of that was the result of this hundred year period where the Avatar was gone, absent. And even once he came back, there was still so much that would have to be done in in this post-war, post-colonial reality. And the attitudes of the people aren't going to suddenly change necessarily. They're still going to be passing down ideas and things to their kids and grandkids and such that weren't firmly rooted in the idea that the Avatar saves everything. The Avatar is here to prevent these things from happening. So I just kind of wonder if some of those things played into a society. Not only is is society changing with innovation, bigger cities, things like that. Democracy. Um, (laughs) But yeah, if, if some of those attitudes pass down the led to more, I don't know, a a wider variety of attitudes towards the Avatar than maybe was previously there. Yeah, that makes sense. I was also thinking, though, that it probably would be really difficult, like what Sozin did. It would be really difficult to fight against the mythology of the world to go against the Avatar because the Avatar has been there for so many hundreds of generations, you know, Mm -hmm. to be like, we know better, we can do more. I I imagine even to the Fire Nation, that was probably a battle that he had to wage to help change thinking for, for the worse. And the last thing I was just kind of thinking about is like, what if the Avatar turned out to be a terribly selfish, toxic person? It must have happened at it least once. It had to have, yeah. right? And how would that affect how leaders would respond? How would that affect 
how, yeah, just the average person would think about the Avatar and the power that the Avatar would wield. I mean, we saw what happened to Amon, mm-hmm. right? And it wasn't the Avatar that did that, but someone with so much power. And so I could imagine that could, yeah, significantly impact things too. Or the community that hated Kyoshi, mm-hmm. where, yeah, you know, people have negative experiences with the Avatar and those experiences reverberate beyond just the life of that one avatar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we move into your question for me? Sure. I was wondering how you think Toph's ability to sense whether people are lying affects how she trusts people. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, trust is an interesting thing, right? It's a complicated thing because she can trust that people are giving her factually correct information potentially could they be so good at lying like azula that it um, invalidates that method of, of detecting the truth yes so it's definitely not infallible and then you you get to some completely different issue of trust Maybe she would trust her parents to be telling her the truth or that they care about her or something like that, but she doesn't trust their discernment. Mm. She doesn't trust their opinion of her. She doesn't trust that they would react well if they knew what she can do, what she did do. That's why she left. She didn't talk to them, um, which shows that there is a breakdown of trust. And... I mean, granted, would I let my 11, 12-year-old kid run around the world (laughs) during a war um, by themselves? No. Uh, But, yeah, I I, I think she is a person who also trusts herself more Mm. than others. Yeah. Compared to the average person, almost any other bender ever, she has more information about people and whether they're lying or telling the truth or not. So yeah, you you would think that would result in more trust, but because of the way that people treat people with certain disabilities in in our society in in her society, it's not as clear-cut as it would be if probably Katara had that ability or Sokka or something instead. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really true. And I, I also wonder if maybe some of Toph's standoffishness, her general dislike of people, <laughs> um, does that come from the fact that she realizes that people aren't trustworthy? Because she has more insight into that than almost anyone else. Mm-hmm. Because you know, you mentioning her parents, I think, is a great example where they can be telling the truth as they perceive it. But that doesn't mean that what they're saying is right or is Mm -hmm. reality. So Toph can understand probably how people delude themselves, manipulate others, you know, all these these ways that people can be dishonest, yeah, with themselves or with other people with a really, really keen insight. And I can imagine that that would be something that can make someone more jaded. And she didn't have any friends. Mm Mm-hmm. So... How are you practicing building trust? All you have is your parents and servants, right? Which is also why I am just so glad for her that she met Aang. Because Mm -hmm. for someone to be 
trustworthy and someone who she could start building those social skills and and relationships with he's just the best (laughs) i know and her aloofness and brashness don't really bother him that much exactly yeah yeah okay well why don't we head into our missed opportunities yeah so i was just thinking about see (laughs) season two of legend of korra your just the whole season? No, <laughs> but it's your least favorite season, it so is. it made me laugh. Um, because we have Korra trusting Unalak. Mm-hmm. And her, not just trusting him, which sure, it's her uncle who she's seen a few times or whatever, but like, she never had a close relationship with him. She never saw him a lot. Yeah. And for her to just automatically trust him kind of more than Tenzin and more than her own dad. Tenzin, who she'd lived with, trained with for, I'm not sure how long, probably at least a year. And then her dad, who she lived with her entire life up until that point. And for her to just trust Unalak without, I don't know, at least trying to verify some facts, you know, or Mm. something. And yeah, I understand it's not like, oh, I can just Google it or something. But like, you could try to learn more about certain things rather than jumping to a lot of assumptions and conclusions and yeah trusting something that you don't really understand and the person isn't explaining to you what exactly is going on you know to to disastrous effects i mean i I think there have been times when she is a little too optimistic Mm -hmm. so maybe that's part of her personality it's like yeah i'll join and help take down the equalist without really thinking it through without so i don't think it's 100 percent out of character for her but i still feel like there's something missing there yeah yeah that's definitely one of my issues with that season i think my last watch through the thing that made me be at least a little bit more okay with it even if i think it's still narratively unsatisfying is seeing it actually through the prism of Korra is willing to put all of this trust and faith into Unalak because she perceives it as he's the only one who trusts her because Mm -hmm. her father and Tenzin are both being more wary about what she should be doing and they have trust in her intentions but they also recognize they trust her for what a 17 year old should exactly. probably be trusted with yeah. and even a little more a little extra and Unalak makes it seem like oh no you're the avatar you should just be able to have all these spiritual connections already and i'm going to get you there mm-hmm. and i think she sees that as him treating her more respectfully than maybe others are and that's why she puts her trust in him it's very self-centered it's very immature And yeah, that was something that made me think, okay, like she's a young woman. She is a, you know, she's doing a irresponsible action at this point. And it's not something I like, but at least I can kind of understand what they're trying to do with it. But yes, it's also just frustrating to be like, he's so clearly manipulating you. (laughs) (laughs) But what about you? What is your missed opportunity? My missed opportunity is also in The Legend of Korra. I thought you were going to say also in season two of Legend of Korra. Uh, I think it might be season two. Uh, <laughs> at least is when it starts, but it continues throughout the rest of the series. Because it's uh, Mako being a cop. Um, oh no. And it's specifically Mako having trust in the system 
enough to be a cop. Because Mako's someone who grew up on the streets, who Mm -hmm. grew up without a home, who was involved in gang activity because it was a way for him and his brother to survive. He understands, or he should understand, the ways that the system fails people Mm -hmm. and the ways that criminal justice in particular can be used to further marginalize people. Yeah. And he is also someone who makes his own mistakes and is around other people who make mistakes. And yet he's still okay being a member of this violent police agency. And when they meet Kai, automatic distrust Mm -hmm. for who he was, you know, who his brother was. And I don't know, maybe maybe that's some amount of self-hatred that is coming out that way because of the position that he was in for so long. But yeah, agreed. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not the most unique character arc I've ever seen. I've seen plenty of, of characters who become police officers who go through similar kinds of journeys. And so I'm not saying Avatar just like, created this awful (laughs) trope but i do wish that they spent a bit more time interrogating it and engaging with what it would mean for someone like mako to be in that position interrogating it instead of having interrogations exactly yes precisely thank you you're welcome chris okay well what's your takeaway i think my takeaway is that there's actually a lot of trust in avatar considering that there's so many terrible things that are going on and it's really the trust between friends that saves the day you know it is powerful enough to help people go up against the worst odds and manage even in terrible circumstances and terrifying circumstances even when yeah you're continually seeing people who are trying to kill you trying to kill others, have given up, aren't trying to resist anymore, or are resisting in the wrong way, like the freedom fighters, people who you would hope that you could trust, like Hama, the bloodbender. So yeah, I think that commitment and trust between people is really powerful. Yeah, it's nice. (laughs) What's your takeaway? Um, I don't know if this is anything, but <laughs> cool. I'm thinking about whether one of the reasons the show, as we talked about many times, can deal with such weighty topics and heavy issues in a way that is serious and yet also accessible for children mm-hmm. is because the format and the tone of the show kind of bring in this implicit trust that the characters are going to be okay. Even in difficult times, I don't really fear for the lives of the protagonists of the show. Because of the the style of the show, I just have this kind of, yeah, this subconscious trust that they'll be alright. So that means that I can watch the show for entertainment value and not have to, even though it can absolutely be emotionally affecting, I don't have these worries that I will have to watch characters despair over one another. They can certainly despair over other characters, you know, as we see in the third episode when we find out what happened to all the air nomads. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of this relationship between the creators and the audience that also has an element of trust there that isn't necessarily a, a positive or negative thing. It's just something that 
can aid in the storytelling or at least impact the storytelling going on. Um, and I think it does that in this series, maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Strong conviction. <laughs> but just when you said that um, about finding out what happened there in Nomads, then I was just like, <gasps> it was only because Aang lost trust in the air nomads and deciding what to do <gasps> for his life that then he lived and could save the world that's so sad that's extremely sad okay sorry to bring us all down but you you had such a nice heartfelt <laughs> takeaway and you just couldn't trust, let it be trust helps save the world actually <laughs> betrayal of trust does <laughs> Well, should, should we close out on that happy note? I suppose, yeah, yeah. Uh, what will we be discussing next week? So we are going to be returning to Harry Potter, and we are going to be looking at the series through the theme of learning and education. We've touched on it before, but now we're going to delve in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my brain's starting to work already. <laughs> Okay, well, that will be great. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description, or you can join us at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines if you want to become a supporter of the show. That helps to keep the show sustainable, and it also gets you access to fun extra content. We are so grateful to all of those who have supported us thus far, and we hope that you will consider joining their ranks. We also want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.